Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Maletzadeh. More than 118 million Americans are fully vaccinated from COVID-19. What will it take to reach herd immunity and get through to the vaccine holdouts? Today's episode welcomes four Roosevelt University experts to answer your most important COVID vaccine questions. Our science and pharmacy faculty will break down the new variants, vaccine hesitancy, and the Johnson & Johnson pause. Now I will hand it over to our moderator, Dr. Melissa Hogan. She is the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy. Welcome to our panel discussion on the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I am the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. Earlier this year, we conducted a series of discussions with faculty from the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy on different aspects of the COVID-19 vaccine. Our first session was entitled, From Trials to Vials, and featured Dr. Robert Sizer, who provided insight on the vaccine development process. Our second session, with Dr. Bedria Nikoshevich, addressed common myths and misperceptions about the vaccine. Dr. Jason Allegro shared his experiences as an infectious disease pharmacist treating COVID-19 patients. We were also joined by a special guest, Dr. Tamara Marshall, who shared how the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately affects communities of color. All of the sessions are available on the Roosevelt University and Justice for All podcast which can be found on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. A lot has happened since we last met. The vaccine has been made available to everyone age 16 and up, and the Pfizer vaccine just received approval for children age 12 and up. Almost 60% of adults in the United States have received at least one shot. Whereas people were struggling to get an appointment for the vaccine, now many health departments and pharmacy locations in the area are offering it without an appointment. The one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine was paused due to a possible association with a rare blood clot. It is available again with precautions. Today, I'm pleased to bring back our faculty panelists to provide an update on the COVID-19 vaccination efforts and what's new in treating COVID-19. During our live broadcast today, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. Feel free to type them into the chat and we'll save time to address them at the end of our discussion. Before we begin, I'd like to ask each of our panelists to share their personal experiences with the vaccine. Did you have any adverse effects and how has your life changed since being vaccinated? Dr. Allegro, I know you were among the first to be immunized back in December, so we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Hogan. Yeah, I I was immunized in December and then I got my second dose in January. I feel great. I I only had side effects kind of the day after that second vaccine. And other than that, nothing unusual, nothing that's kind of been long-term or anything like that. The other part of your question was kind of like, how do I approach things a bit differently now? 
I think initially I was a bit hesitant to be like, okay, let's kind of just do things as normal. And still, I am not to that point yet. But with some of the CDC guidance that has come out there, folks who have been fully vaccinated can gather with other completely vaccinated people in their own home. That is something that has helped me a lot because before I had a lot of anxiety, even just visiting my parents and giving them a hug, just, you know, just elbow bumping them, wearing a mask when I'm close to them, all of that. All of that, I feel pretty comfortable because our, our family, thankfully, is is fully vaccinated and be able to do things like that. And, and we just had Mother's Day this past weekend, and it was just, you know, night and day from from last year's Mother's Day. You could kind of com- contrast that. And it has been a big difference in terms of that. That's wonderful. That's really good to hear. Dr. Nikolshevich, how about you? I received my first vaccine a couple of weeks after Dr. Allegro, also back in January, and my second dose in February. With the first dose, I had absolutely no issues whatsoever, no side effects. Uh, With the second dose, I did experience a bout of dizziness and fatigue that began almost uh, 24 hours on the dot after the dose was given. Um, It only lasted about half an hour. So for me, that half an hour of discomfort was definitely worth feeling protected against COVID-19. Just to point out, both Dr. Allegra and myself received the Pfizer vaccine because that was the vaccine that was offered within the health system we work at. And in terms of how my life has changed uh, since I have had the vaccine, much like Dr. Allegra, I feel more comfortable being around people. So there's obviously a lot less stress, a lot less anxiety. Running into a friend and standing there and talking to them for 20, 30 minutes, even though it's outside, you know, before that used to induce a little bit of anxiety, wondering if I'm going to bring something home to my children or to my husband who has had some um, health issues and is high risk for COVID-19 consequences if he were to contract the virus. So it certainly has given me a chance to relax a little bit more and enjoy life a little bit more. How about you, Dr. Sizer? When we spoke last, you hadn't yet had an opportunity to be vaccinated. Have you gotten your vaccine now? Relatively late to the party compared to the other panelists, but I'm about two weeks removed from the second dose of the Moderna uh, mRNA vaccine and very similar symptoms. I felt kind of sluggy after the second jab for a couple of days, but much, much better now. And I can certainly agree with the other comments that it feels like a relief, a chance to relax a little bit. But like the other panelists, I'm also trying to stay aware of my interactions with people and just be mindful, you know, as we continue to start to do things that that feel more more normal again. It sounds great. It sounds like everyone's sort of getting back to normal slowly because of the vaccine. So that's wonderful. I have a lot of questions for all of you. So we're going to get started talking more about the vaccine and, and what's going on. So I think we're at the point in the U.S. and especially in our area that the majority of people at greatest risk of complications have been able to get the vaccine. But at the same time, there are people who don't see the need to be vaccinated. So we'll start with you, Dr. Allegro. Do you think it's a safe bet for someone who's young and healthy, it's not at high risk for complications from COVID, not to get vaccinated? I know that there are people who contract COVID and barely even know they have it. So why should they get vaccinated? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I I think there's a few different components to it. So if you kind of take a look at the risk factors for somebody that gets severe COVID, a young, healthy person who exercises and eats well and doesn't have any comorbidities, that's going to be very low in the totem pole in terms of getting severe COVID. And, And that's just 
the, the facts and that's kind of the, the statistics as well. However, if, if that is kind of your demographic and you know, we may have some of those are our college students, all of that. If you interact with somebody who is not within that demographic in whatever fashion, whether that is going home to your parents, going home to relatives or friends that may have these comorbid conditions or maybe elderly, even obesity is a really big one. That is a, a very common thing that we see in the United States that can lead to severe COVID. I, I've seen, you know, younger folks in the hospitals in their early 30s, late 20s that get COVID that gets bad enough to go into the hospital. So first of all, for, for the self, that that is one person who would be protecting by getting the vaccine. Then the other folks that you are with, even if they're vaccinated, you getting the vaccine helps reduce your transmission to them if you pick it up somewhere along the road. The other thing too is, you know, I, I understand that there is, especially we're over 12 months into this, there is kind of this incentive to want to travel and go out and do all these things as things are starting to normalize. The vaccine will give you protection if you decide to do those things as well. And I think that anything that we can protect ourselves to do that will be helpful. And I guess the last thing, other than the classic things we think of with COVID that become severe COVID is our respiratory failure and things like that, going to the ICU, getting intubated and whatnot. But we also have to think of the less severe things that we don't really know exactly what's going on with these yet because we don't have enough time and enough experience with what they're calling long COVID. So having prolonged things like a loss of taste, a loss of smell, having things like inflammatory conditions that pop up because you had this viral infection. And then one of the, you know, to me, one of the scary things is this thing they call brain fog, where there's just this cognitive haziness that you don't really you can't think as straight and there are some reports that this has gone on for months and months and months afterwards and who knows how that's going to affect younger people long term especially in kind of more formative years of their life even if that is you know 18 20 25 and whatnot so i think those are a handful of reasons that it's still advised to get the vaccine and now with the changes in how the age groups are it's a bit more reasonable to do so that makes sense. Uh, Dr. Nikoshevich, what about folks who've recovered from COVID-19? Do they have natural immunity? Do they need to bother with the vaccine or are they covered? There are several studies out there that actually show antibodies for COVID-19 might be present in the bodies of those who have recovered from COVID for a period of up to eight months. However, when we consider that, we also have to keep in mind that just the fact that they're present doesn't mean that they're there at a level that is significant enough to confer protection against the virus itself. So if you'll recall back to when we talked last time, when vaccines were first coming out, CDC had recommended at that time that patients who had a natural COVID-19 infection wait up to 90 days to receive the first dose of the vaccine. And that was because there is some level of natural immunity that is conferred by the infection. However, this level of natural immunity varies significantly between patients, and while majority of the patients will develop the antibodies, there are patients who will not develop antibodies ever at a level significant enough to confer protection from future infection. So in terms of a recommendation for getting vaccinated, absolutely every patient who has had COVID and those who have not had COVID should be vaccinated against it. Vaccine has been shown in clinical trials to certainly confer 
protection for all patients who take it to some extent with efficacy being in 94-95% range for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines and in about 72% range for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that we have currently available. So certainly they should be vaccinated. Thank you. Um, Can can I jump in real quick? Oh, sure. Yeah. So so one thing to add to that, Dr. Dr. Nikosevich, I I, I completely agree with what you're saying. The the other thing with those studies, not just they didn't they didn't just take a look at how many people ended up getting COVID, which that leads to the 94, 95% efficacy rate. They also took a look at what were the levels of what they call neutralizing antibodies in patients that received the vaccine versus not. And they compared that to those who had convalescent plasma. So someone who got COVID and they actually showed that in the vaccine groups, those were generally higher. The the geometric mean, essentially the titers, the levels of the antibodies that should neutralize the virus were higher in those that got the vaccine. So even if you got COVID in the past, your immunity is not as effective as if you would get the vaccine. Interesting. So there is a benefit even if you've had it and even if you're even if you measure antibodies, it might not be as powerful as getting the vaccine. Dr. Sizer, you spoke in our previous session about personal choice versus collective responsibility. So what is your perspective on low-risk people like healthy young adults choosing not to get vaccinated? I think it's kind of important to think about what low-risk means and to compare that against, again, the sort of personal distinction and the the collective or social considerations that we want to make. So it's really good news that younger people are less likely to have severe COVID or to die from COVID. It's really good news that we're seeing case rates and uh, death rates start to decline uh, again. And we're we're really coming through thanks to vaccination, thanks to people's continued vigilance. When we break down that data, it's kind of really interesting that the groups that are seeing the highest rates of decline and improvement are people who are older and the vaccination rates are highest among those groups as well. Younger people are still are not getting vaccinated to the same extent and they're still seeing kind of a leveling off uh, and in some cases even a slight increase in the number of cases that they're getting. So that's the clearest indication that there is a strong connection between vaccination and case rates for these different groups. So that kind of leads us back to this idea that getting vaccinated is more than just a personal decision with a personal outcome, with an individual outcome. So we talk about vaccine status. We talk about, you know, are you vaccinated? Are you not? But you know, really, what we what we ought to be talking about more is this is what that mindset sort of represents. And I would like to sort of remind people that you know, the information that we have shows that that vaccination, as we've heard about from the other panelists, confers not only protection and benefit to you, but to the people that you can come in contact with. And so. Getting vaccinated lowers everybody's risks. Even if you're already at low risk, it makes you even lower risk. And it comes at very little personal cost to you because of there's no cost to get the vaccine. There's very little chance of, of side effects or anything that could put you at a disadvantage, you know, medically, financially, whatever. Thank you. So clearly all three of you have very compelling reasons that people should be vaccinated, regardless of risk. Certainly if you're high risk, but even if you consider yourself low risk, you might still suffer complications, you might still be spreading the infection. But vaccine hesitancy is being identified as a major concern in the vaccine rollout. And there is a lot of conflicting information out there about the vaccines. 
Let's start with you, Dr. Nikosevich. How do you think we can best support people who are truly concerned about safety uh, around the vaccines? As you pointed out, Dr. Hogan, vaccine hesitancy is one of the most pressing concerns at this point in time. A lot of the patients are expressing concerns about the safety, about the efficacy of the vaccine, about the duration of the clinical trials. And I think one of the best ways that we can support those with concerns regarding the vaccines is to do exactly what we're trying to do here today, to educate others. So I've spent countless hours over the past weeks, months, talking to not only patients, friends, and family members, but also random people in the grocery store, uh, complete strangers that I will run into that, you know, I've just met and they will tell me that they're not confident about vaccines. And I'll sit there and I'll just talk to them about the data for half an hour. I always say it's not my job to convince anyone, but it is my job to provide them with accurate information regarding the vaccines so that they can understand both sides of the story. For those that are not healthcare providers, you can still take an opportunity to educate others. You can do that by sharing trustworthy information from the CDC. The Immunization Action Coalition is actually a really good place to look at when you're looking for data that is accurate and easy to relate to others. And of course, local public health departments are a great resource for that. Obviously, the vaccine series done within the End Justice for All podcast are a great resource. All of us made sure that we looked at all of the information available and presented it in a manner that makes it easy to understand. So oftentimes, I'll talk to a person about vaccine. I actually talked to my insurance agent about the vaccine in person over the phone and then sent her a link to the podcast. So Dr. Sizer's podcast, Dr. Allegro's, Dr. Marshall's podcast, so that she could have an opportunity to listen to it for herself. And I received an email back from her saying, you know, thank you so much. I've shared this with several friends who are now more open to the vaccine as well. So education, I think, is one of the most important steps that we can take in order to help decrease vaccine hesitancy right now. That makes a lot of sense. I've heard that the most important source of information is really a trusted person, right? So uh, your pharmacist, your physician, your other healthcare providers, your professors at a trusted university, all good sources of information. Dr. Allegro and Dr. Sizer, do you have anything to add about helping people who are, who have valid concerns about this vaccine? I, I think it can be helpful really to not just talk to people who, well, you want to talk to people whom you whom you trust. You want to refer, refer people to to those whom they they trust with other types of of information and decisions. And I've I found in talking with people too that if you simply come back at them with with facts, they may retrench a little bit more and feel a little bit less sure about their own their own position, but maybe not in the way that you'd want. So in taking the time to kind of expand the conversation to where did you get this information? What were you thinking about? What is what is the underlying concern? That can be something that helps people understand the, the motivations and the source of their hesitancy rather than just sort of saying, here's a point and here's a counterpoint. And that can sometimes be more effective. It sounds like my colleagues have been doing that, you know, but it really does require the time to do it. It can't be done just over a quick text message or Facebook post or whatever. Engaging in conversation is really the best way to go about it. Yeah, I, I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that we really need to respect the concerns of people. People are not trying to be necessarily belligerent or uh, contrarians, but rather they constantly have to look out for their own health and well-being. And this is one way that they're doing that. And, you know, if we have information to share, we can do that. But we have to 
understand what the concerns are and, and be good listeners as well. We're going to turn to variants now. I've read that because of the more contagious variants, it'll take a lot more people to get immunized to reach that herd immunity that we were talking so much about last spring. So 90% will be, need to be immunized versus what we were talking about 70% before. So is there any hope of reaching that goal because of the variants, Dr. Ligro? And if not, what does, what does it mean for ending the pandemic? So like you said before, we were hoping to reach about a 60 to 70% herd immunity. And to recap what that means, it's kind of the threshold that we have that immune folks in the population will decrease transmission so much that those that are not protected and don't have immunity won't or won't get the virus. And we're thinking about 60 to 70%. This includes vaccinated folks and those that did get immunity by getting the actual disease. And the fact that the variants have been a bit more transmissible as well as they have more virulence, meaning that they're able to better evade our immune system, that makes it a bit concerning. And you said now a higher threshold for herd immunity. There have been a few papers that have been published recently that it seems like herd immunity, to be frank, is not kind of in the picture anymore. And with a lot of what we are seeing with vaccine hesitancy, there, there's a whole host of reasons that, that I'll kind of briefly review. So the variance is a big one. The fact that immunity, we, we kind of don't know how long these vaccines will last in terms of immunity. This will be a question that still needs to be answered, whether or not a booster dose will be needed in the future, something like a flu shot. We are still kind of vaccine rollout has, as we know, has been a little bit of an issue earlier in the, the first few months of the rollout, but has since, I think, improved. But it is also variable based on the state and even based on the county. It, could, it, it might be easier to get vaccines somewhere else versus a different place. One thing with COVID-19 is that it's harder to kind of just structure where herd immunity would occur. And what I mean by that is if we go back to, I think this was two, early 2000s with SARS-CoV-1, the SARS outbreak that was in China, it was mostly contained within China. And it was mostly people who were in certain areas there. And we didn't see a ton of it go globally, but with our even more globalized world now and 20 years later from that, it's hard to just confine where that virus is to one place so that herd immunity is, is a bit harder to achieve in that manner. And then I guess the big, the, the last big thing about the difficulty in achieving herd immunity is, is kind of actually a few things we mentioned before. Once you get vaccinated, you feel a little bit more comfortable, but then maybe some folks, will, we, we might get too complacent and get to have these big gatherings. And, and we see that in places like India that has been devastating and that has really hit really, really hard there partly because there's been a lot of really large gatherings in, in that area, in addition to low vaccination rates and whatnot. So I think being consistently vigilant with this and, and the practices that we have kind of done in the last year and going with guidance that CDC has would be ways to improve this. But instead of achieving herd immunity and completely eradicating SARS-CoV-2, I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. It doesn't seem like that per the scientists and the epidemiologists out there, what it's going to probably look like is, you know, hopefully we'll get this under control and then there will be pockets of an outbreak here and an outbreak there. 
depending on the different situation, the different exposures within a certain area. And that's kind of what, you know, our quote unquote new normal may potentially look like, which that's not ideal, but I think facing that and figuring out how to best approach that is kind of our next journey. Oh, so that's not the greatest news. And so it sounds like if we if we have high vaccination rates in a certain area, there will be less likely an outbreak, but there will be pockets where there's low vaccination rates where there might be continued resurgence of the virus. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about those variants. There was a lot of concern initially that our vaccines weren't going to work against them, that these wonderful tools that were being unleashed on our society that we were so happy to have weren't going to work. Is that the case? Which one is most prevalent in this area? And do the vaccines actually work? Dr. Nikosiewicz, I'll give this one to you. Well, according to the CDC, the most prevalent variant currently in the United States is B.1.1.7, which was first identified in the United Kingdom during September of 2020. And this variant at that time was seen to be more efficient in terms of transmission and more rapid in terms of transmission. And some of the data that we originally saw from the United Kingdom suggested that this variant might actually be associated with an increased risk of that compared to some of the other variants that we had seen prior to that. In terms of whether or not the vaccines work, there's actually a lot of very encouraging data coming out regarding both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So the Pfizer vaccine, there were actually two big studies that were released, one out of Israel, the other one out of Qatar. And it's essentially data from real world use of the Pfizer vaccine within these countries. And this data suggests that the vaccine can prevent the worst outcomes, including severe pneumonia and death caused by B117 and B1351, which was the variant first identified in South Africa. The data from Qatar specifically indicates that the vaccine is about 88% effective. I'm averaging it out at preventing infection with B117 at two weeks after the second dose of the vaccine, which is when we typically see the full immunity developed from the vaccine. And it is about 73% effective at preventing infection with B1351, which is that South African strain. The vaccine was also shown to be about 97.4% effective at preventing severe, critical, or fatal disease from any form of COVID and 100% effective at preventing severe, critical, or fatal disease caused by either of these two strains, so either B117 or B1351. In Israel, the data that was released from there shows that the vaccine was more than 95% effective at protecting against COVID infection, hospitalization, and death among people fully vaccinated over the age of 16. And in patients over 85 years of age, it was more than 94% effective at preventing infection, hospitalization, and death. So certainly we're seeing very high efficacy from the Pfizer vaccine with both B117 and B1351 variants. With Moderna, um, they were actually testing out two different types of booster doses. One was the original Moderna vaccine that they were utilizing as a booster dose. The other one was a modified dose that was specific to the B1351 variant. 
And both of these booster doses were shown to significantly enhance immune responses against South African B1351 and the Brazilian P1 variant. So data from that one, specific numbers have not been released just yet, but there is encouraging data on that front as well. And then last vaccine that we have available in the United States is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And that one was shown to be 64% effective against moderate to severe COVID in South Africa, where B1351 variant was identified in approximately 95% of COVID cases present at the time. And it was 82% effective against severe COVID beginning about 28 days post-vaccine. So it takes a little bit longer to build immunity with that one. But still, the numbers we're seeing are very good and definitely way above the threshold of 50 to 60% efficacy that FDA typically expects to see from vaccines. So this to me sounds like some of the best news that we've heard in a year, because I, I recall the, the amount of anxiety I was hearing from people that, you know, number one, should I even bother because the variants are coming and it's not going to work? And number two, I've been vaccinated and will it even work? you know, can I trust the vaccine? And it, I guess you gave us a lot of data and it's really encouraging that this is real world data, not lab data, not, you know, some little study, but it's actually happened in real places. And I, I would summarize sort of globally that you just told me that they work really well against all the variants. Absolutely. And there's actually new data that just came out yesterday um, or today I'm mixing up my days, but there is brand new data that indicates that Pfizer and Moderna are likely effective against the B16171 variant, which was the variant that was recently identified in India that's leading to that large outbreak in India and the numerous deaths that are occurring there, unfortunately, right now due to the virus. So the news is certainly extremely encouraging to all of us. It makes me very happy to know that the vaccine does confer protective immunity against even the shifts in virus genetics that are causing more severe disease, it seems like every day, but it's certainly very encouraging. Absolutely. Dr. Allegro mentioned booster shots. I want to talk about that for a second. Dr. Sizer, are we going to have to roll up our sleeves in a year or less and all get booster shots? And before you answer that, how do we figure this out if we need booster shots? Like what what sort of research is being done right now? Yeah, others have, have mentioned this during the discussion, and it, it, that I think is very useful to think of this as sort of a, a continuum of, of research and of prevention and intervention to help control the spread of this virus, not just today, not just for the way we understand it now, but going forward for years, because we will be dealing with this in one shape or, or another for years and decades to come. So booster shots are a way to boost or to sort of revive our immune response to a pathogen. And in some cases, they're used to be able to account for or to deal with variations on, on a pathogen, just like the variants that we've been talking about for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So the timing of booster shots is going to depend on some of the things we've, other, we've, we've heard about before, whether you have neutralizing antibodies, how long they last. Uh, what your immune system does to kind of remember your exposure to a virus and be able to deal with the re-exposure to a new virus or a variation of it. And it's also going to depend on uh, the course of vaccination that we have going forward now. 
So the people who research viruses the people are, and vaccines, the people who develop them are looking at these things very actively to kind of trace the incidence and spread of these variants and look at the timing that's going to be necessary for potential booster shots going going forward. So this is all based on the data that we that we accumulate over these studies and through the, the sort of real world knowledge that we have about how effective these vaccines are. So do you think we're going to all need booster shots? I think we can expect that we will be able to receive them. And there's some issues that come in with with vaccine equity too, you know, so there are places in the world where vaccination rates right now for first, you know, first and second doses are, you know, much lower than they are here in the U.S. And so I think we should also be looking at how we can make sure that, you know, people are protected adequately and as over as, you know, large a, a scope and scale as we can, as we can manage, even as we're thinking about, you know, boosting and bolstering protection over, over a, a longer term. You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. So we're going to turn now to one of the vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. There was a big stir just a few weeks ago when it was put on pause. So I'm going to ask you all different things about this. And Dr. Sizer, we'll go right back to you. Can you explain the reason for the pause? And is this something the FDA commonly does or was this something very unusual. It was a, certainly not an unprecedented event. And the fact that we were hearing about this pause, we were hearing about the reasons for it, and that it was relatively brief period of time, all kind of attests to the, the fact that we have this system in place for getting information about vaccine effectiveness, uh, complications, side effects, et cetera. So there's a whole reporting system that goes in that allows experts from statisticians to to, to physicians, to a whole range of people to see data on vaccination and find out how effective these things are and what people can expect afterwards. So in the case of this particular vaccine, there was a particular population, women uh, under the age of, of 50, who were at an elevated risk of developing a specific type of uh, rare blood clot as a, as a complication of receiving this particular vaccine. So in addition to those side effects, then it was about seven out of a million seven uh, incidents per million women vaccinated under age 50, and about one in one million women who were vaccinated with this particular vaccine overall. So that's still a pretty low uh, incidence rate, but it was enough to trigger this full review of all of the data, kind of figure out what the risks really were, and to kind of take this pause and say, look, we want to understand this condition. We want to let healthcare providers know what to look out for and how to, how to treat this if they see it in their patients who have been vaccinated and uh, figure out how we're going to let people know so that they can make more informed decisions about what those risks might be and to whether it would be a good choice for them to have this particular vaccine. So again, it, to me, it's sort of all attests to the fact that we have this reporting system. We can act on the data that we get to improve you know, the communication and reduce the risk because that's what it's all about. It's interesting because I've heard people say, you know, it's it's really terrible or it's too bad that the FDA did this because now people won't be as confident in vaccines because, you know, why, why would they stop it? And my response is similar to yours, right? Like this tells you that there is a very robust mechanism around safety and around monitoring. And this is this is a normal procedure and it's because we're tracking the data and it's because we're cautious about side effects that this 
that this happened. So it's a good thing. Dr. Allegro, can you tell us a little bit more about this rare clot and, and how a vaccine could cause a clot if there is a causal relationship there? Yeah, I, I think we have to be, we, we don't really know if there is a causal relationship uh, at this point. And we have to be kind of careful to say, oh, this causes this adverse effect because like Dr. Seisler was saying, this is you know, less than a one in a million shot in, in having these types of clots. And you know that versus all the complications with COVID, if you actually get it, those are much, 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 much higher percentages in those settings. So the particular type of blood clot they found in these six women is something called a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. So let's break that down a little bit. So a cerebral meaning in the brain, venous sinus thrombosis. So there's these blood vessels that will actually drain out CSF and extra blood uh, through your CSF? sinus, oh, your cerebral spinal fluid. Sorry, and extra blood that is deoxygenated, so it's not that, that does not have oxygen into your sinuses, and these blood vessels can get occluded. So if there is occluded a clot, yeah. So so occluded is like so. Think of your blood vessel normally as kind. Of, this is not great for a podcast, right? Showing my uh, my blood vessel clot here, but if your blood vessel normally uh, blood will flow through this. It will get occluded with a clot if there is something that kind of sticks to there and doesn't let blood flow go through as well. So this is what's happening or what happened in these six patients where there was a clot, a thrombosis that occurred in these women. And that was the thing that signaled, hey, there might be something going on here. Let's pause and let's kind of figure this out. They did. They took a look at those cases and they made a determination that it, it was not at high enough a risk to, to stop giving the vaccine, but it is a possible adverse effect from doing that. One thing that is unique about this type of clot is that you have something called thrombocytopenia along with that. Thrombocytopenia is a, a term for a low amount of platelets in your blood. And platelets are something that aggregate together whenever you have some sort of injury and they help to form a blood clot. And you can imagine if you're not having enough of those cells working in your body, then you're actually at a high risk for getting a, uh, a bleed. So like some sort of hemorrhage or some sort of, if you fall and then you don't have anything that can coagulate your blood, that, that can clot things together, then you're just going to keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. So this is a, a pretty unusual type of clotting in the setting of low platelet. So that's what's been rare about the CVST that we've been talking about. It has this low platelet count and they're not really sure kind of what's going on. It's a similar adverse effect that they see with a drug called heparin, where when you give heparin that actually causes your immune, in some people in rare occasions, it causes your immune system to actually attack your platelets. So there are some theories like this may be a similar thing going on here, that there is an immune response that the vaccine is triggering that attacks your platelets. They don't really have a great reason for the mechanism of the clot in the brain itself, but that's kind of, you know, what, what they were looking at with that. Okay. So you got really technical on us, which I- Sorry about that. To, nope. I asked for it. So I'm going to summarize and you're going to tell me if I've got it. So- Excellent. So there were, I think you said six women out of, I think, 
seven million who got the shot. And these six women had a clot inside their brain in a very specific location. And at the same time that they had the clot, they also had something of a bleeding disorder because of their blood was affected that way also. And it's possible, although not really known, it's possible that it, the vaccine could have triggered some sort of like immune disorder that led to all of this. And, but we don't really know yet if the vaccine caused it or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the data that they have is those six patients and the data in terms of the time course of when they got their vaccine, they have all of their labs, they have kind of what happened with these blood clots and whatnot. And trying to make sense of all of that and then, you know, additional studies and whatnot, that, that's where they're going to be able to take a look at that. And now as clinicians, we are very kind of, you know, eyes and ears open for something like this. If somebody comes in, they're like, hey, I got the J&J vaccine a few weeks ago. I'm, I've been having a headache and looking for things like this early on is now kind of, we have, we have a heightened acuity for, for doing that. So um, I think that's one thing that this pause led to. And like Dr. Sizer was saying, this is this is not an unusual thing at all. It's just something that in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of your third vaccine in, in your country, that the, the microscope is on this. But this happens all the time. If you, if you subscribe to the FDA for their drug alerts, this happens like, you know, you'll, you'll probably get alerts weekly where they're going to have some sort of new alert, new warning. They might pause a trial or something like that. So... The J&J vaccine is back, and people can get that, or Moderna or Pfizer. Dr. Nikoshevich, should people, is there anyone who should just not get the J&J vaccine? Can women get it? What are the precautions? What's the, the practical takeaway for people who are looking to get their COVID vaccine? Well, based on the discussion that we just had, there were actually a couple of great things that came out of this pause for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Number one, it gave us a chance to figure out exactly what was going on with these six women. The other thing, as Dr. Allegro had mentioned, because of the interesting nature of this particular clot where the patients also have thrombocytopenia associated with it, one of the things that FDA was able to do is actually create clinical guidelines for clinicians that warned them against using heparin for those patients. So that's sort of an important point to this. It gave them time to come up with, with a mechanism to manage these patients appropriately. And then it also led to some changes to vaccine labeling for this particular vaccine. So patients who have had a severe allergic reaction to this vaccine in the past are obviously contraindicated from receiving it again. So that remains to be a contraindication. That is not a change. However, the FDA did go ahead and add a precaution for women younger than 50 years old. And essentially what they said was these women need to be made aware of the risk of this blood clot that could occur that would involve the low platelets following vaccination. And they should also be told about the availability of other COVID-19 vaccines with which this particular risk was not observed. So specifically referring to mRNA vaccines that we have available, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines where this is not seen as others have mentioned during our session today, vaccine availability has greatly increased over the past few months. So if a woman under the age of 50 is looking for a vaccine as a clinician, you know, you might steer them towards the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine as opposed to the Johnson & Johnson at this point in time. But other than that, the vaccine remains safe and effective to use for our population. 
So I have a few more questions before we go to audience questions, and I'm going to ask you to just give me sort of a as quick of an answer as you can, um, because I want to get to these next few questions. First one is the emergency use authorization has been discussed a lot, especially in the beginning. It's not considered a full approval, and some folks I've heard are waiting for these vaccines to get full approval. So Dr. Sizer, can you explain, are they going to get full approval? Do people Should people be waiting for that? How does that work? Right. Both the term approval and authorization have very specific meanings in this context. And this this is one of those science things that we deal with. So the way we understand a word or, or term can be very different than how it's used in, in common language. So FDA approval refers to a full approval, uh, which has lots of other sort of authorizations and legal implications. What we're talking about with these vaccines and with just one or two other drugs that are used for COVID treatment are emergency use authorizations. And that's to say the authorization means that there is enough evidence to support the specific use of something for a specific purpose during the emergency. And no one can contest that we are have been in an emergency. And so these vaccines are necessary and welcome. So, but they still operate under this emergency use authorization. When the emergency is over, only drugs that have been approved, fully approved, can be can be used. And so that approval, that full approval, is just going to require more time and more data and more of the sort of scrutiny that we've been talking about with getting information on people who've been vaccinated to make sure that everything is safe and effective and will be, you know, going forward. So once that's done, it's basically a legal definition. We fully expect that everything that's been approved for emergency use or authorized for emergency use will be approved fully within a few months. So would you say that someone who's kind of waiting for that, would it be advisable for them to wait or should they just go ahead and get the vaccine? For an individual, I would say go ahead and get the vaccine. The way that full full approval is going to affect things is really going to have to do with how these vaccines and drugs are marketed, legal definitions as for what employers can and can't do about requirements, et cetera. So if you're considering this on an individual basis, I would say we have plenty of evidence right now for you to make an informed decision. But if you're unsure about that and what it means, again, talk to somebody whom you trust and who understands this process so you can get all the information you need. If I may add, Dr. Hogan, the evidence that we have is not going to change. So in terms of the vaccines obtaining full approval, these companies are utilizing exactly the same evidence that they utilized to obtain an EUA with maybe a little bit more additional data over the past few months that was collected as the vaccines were being given out. So truly the the original evidence that was there that led to the EUA is the same evidence that will be used to obtain the full approval more or less. So it's just a matter of time, just some more paperwork. Okay, now we have Pfizer approved for use in children as young as 12, and we're talking about eventually getting approval for even younger children. Dr. Nikoshevich, can you tell us, is this something that people should be rushing out to do like they did to get themselves vaccinated? Should they wait till their next doctor's visit? If you've got a 12 or 13 year old, how urgent is it to go ahead and get them vaccinated? Well, I'll start by telling you, I wish my kids were 12 and 13 already because then I could get them vaccinated immediately. Unfortunately, they're not. So I have a little bit of waiting to do. Everyone should absolutely get their children vaccinated as soon as possible. The vaccine has been shown to be highly safe and effective in the study that was conducted by Pfizer. They had a total of 2,200 children, half in placebo, half in vaccine group. They showed 18 cases of COVID-19 in the placebo group, none in the vaccinated group. So extremely effective. Additionally, 
Again, there is some evidence that vaccines may block transmission of SARS-CoV-2. And now that children are starting to go back to school, you know, my concern is always, will they bring something back unknowingly to my husband, to my grandmother, people who are at higher risk of COVID-19. So absolutely, everyone should be looking to vaccinate their children as soon as possible. I'm going to take just a moment and talk about the vaccination effort around the world, because, you know, even though we're worried about rates of vaccination within the U.S. and in different areas of the U.S., it's almost a moot point if we don't get some progress around the world. So, Dr. Sizer, can you talk about that for a moment? How is that effort going forward? We'd, we'd heard uh, earlier in the conversation about what's going on in India. This is something that is not we, we see it playing out there, but it's not something that is really sort of unique to India. The same sorts of issues that they encountered, not being prepared for a second, <clears throat> a second wave, not having the healthcare systems, and you know, really in place to to support it. Lower rates of vaccinations, even though they had supply, they were sending some things out of the country. This is something that that could happen anywhere. So there are complications to the vaccination campaigns. We've seen some successes as well in some countries, such as Israel and parts of Europe. And it really just depends on, I think, that that sort of collective will, you know, strong leadership, clear messaging and communication, and that sense of kind of that societal obligation and duty that that we have. So in places where that's been effective, vaccination campaigns have been effective. And in places where it's been a slower rollout or there have been complications, we've seen some of those consequences. So it's definitely something to to monitor and to learn from and not just look inside and say, look, what you know, what we're doing in the U.S. is going to be the only solution for us. We need to look worldwide as well. If I may add to that, we live in a global society, meaning diseases travel. So these diseases that at one point might have been limited to just Europe or just the United States or just Asia are now traveling from continent to continent very easily in a simple plane flight. I keep track of the Balkan area because that's where I'm from, so Eastern Europe. And, you know, we, we're extremely lucky here in the United States to have access to vaccines that are safe, that are effective, and that pretty much anyone can go out and get at this point in time. Many of the countries in Eastern Europe are just now beginning their rollout. Bosnia, the country that I was born in, started mass immunizations only about three weeks or so ago. Montenegro started them about two weeks ago on a mass scale where they're actually available to a larger part of their population. And as Dr. Sizer pointed out, unless most of the world is vaccinated, we really can't look forward to an end of this pandemic. So we, we have to keep in mind that taking care of your neighbor in this case is just as important as taking care of yourself. That's a really good point. I want to take just a moment and talk about treatment of COVID-19 and whether or not there have been any advances. Dr. Allegro? There, there haven't been too many changes since I, I spoke to you guys in March. We use dexamethasone, we use remdesivir, our antiviral, and our steroid and our antiviral, respectively. Other options, there hasn't been anything too landmark since then. One thing I do want to comment on, though, is... We, we did receive word from our national American Society of Health Systems Pharmacy, specifically for Illinois, that they are recommending against the use of these long-worded monoclonal antibodies I talked about last time. So bamlanivimab and estevimab specifically, they're recommending against that use in the state of Illinois because they have shown to have poor effectiveness against the Brazil strain, the P1 strain, 
And there actually are increased rates of that variant in Illinois. So this is the antibody treatment that you would get in the outpatient setting. So if you have high risk factors for going into the hospital, but you're not sick enough to go to the hospital, they've kind of recommended to use the other antibody cocktail instead of the bamlanivimab, estevimab. So didn't think I had to have to say that again today, but um, those are kind of the big things in treatment. Otherwise, there really hasn't been any big changes to treatment. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for your insights. We do have some questions coming in from the audience, so I want to take a moment and get your responses to those. The first one is, what is the efficacy percentage of the Pfizer vaccine for children 12 to 15? Dr. Nikoshevich, do you know those numbers? So in the Pfizer study, based on what we're seeing in the placebo group with 18 cases of COVID and zero in the treatment group, meaning the vaccine group, it's 100% efficacy for protecting children from COVID-19. Extremely promising. Wow, that's pretty good. You can't get better than that. Next question is, uh, I'll go to you, Dr. Sizer. Question about getting titers tested before booster shots. So is it possible that we'll have people get their titers tested and then decide if they need a booster shot and would that be effective? Yeah, it's a good question and it, and it gets to that, that issue about trying to gauge how long our protective immunity lasts or is going to be of benefit to us after getting vaccinated or after having a, a you know, natural course of infection. I think just like everything else, this is going to be based on data and it's going to be based on information that we glean from trials. So one of the things that happens in clinical trials is that we follow up with the people who got shots and we find out we get more information from them if they continue to participate. We use that as the basis for for new decisions about whether boosters might be necessary and what might be the most effective way of, of administering them. So I would doubt that individuals would need to have a test before they got a booster. It would probably be a matter of determining when a good time interval would be for a booster shot and what would be in that booster shot for people who have already gotten vaccinated. And then we would continue to have these categories of the population, different parts of the population getting booster shots as as indicated, rather than making it an individual sort of basis. Got it. So so that's a possibility and there's more more research to be done. I have a two-part question in the chat, so I want to read the whole thing. It says, do you believe incentivizing vaccinations, perhaps through monetary awards, can help the U.S. achieve herd immunity? And what positive or negative precedents could this set for future global health emergencies? I guess my response with regards to future global health emergencies would be, hopefully, we won't see another one during our lifetime. So, by the time another one like this comes around, I'm hoping that it will be a new generation and we don't have to worry about precedence and that our children have horrible memory, which, you know, if you gauge it by how they listen to us, their memories are terrible. In terms of incentivizing vaccinations, I do believe that incentivizing vaccinations can be very helpful in achieving higher immunization rates. In terms of achieving herd immunity, we may or may not get there. Um, as others have explained during our session today, but it certainly will help improve immunization rates and anything we can do to achieve that is certainly valuable. I know, you know, as a pharmacist, having worked in a community, anytime we had an incentive of some sort available to patients, we saw an increased uptake in that particular service. So certainly helpful, whether or not it'll get us to herd immunity, possibly get us very close to it. And if there is anything we can do to even improve vaccination rates by 10%, I'm all for it. 
I'd agree with that. And I'd say that one thing that has been effective so far is making these vaccines available free of charge. Uh, we report information about uh, about uh, insurance coverage, et cetera, but we're not putting that as a as any sort of obstacle to to obtaining the vaccination. And I think that's going to be important for future vaccinations, these booster shots as well. And I, I believe the the Biden administration has already pledged to make those free going forward. And I believe some insurance companies actually are incentivizing their those uh, that they're covered by you know things like gift cards or or discounts and things like that and you know it makes a lot of sense for them to do that because it would be a lot easier to cover your covid well it's already covered but to incentivize that versus covering someone who's hospitalized for covid those are all really good points i have a new question in the chat to help clarify what we just talked about can someone explain what titers are so that just refers to keeping track of the antibodies that you would have produced as the result of getting a vaccine or getting exposure to the coronavirus. So that's something that one of the measures, one of the most direct measures we have to find out how well protected you are, what your immune system has done in response. Excellent. So that's just that blood test to check to see how you're doing with that. I have two very brief questions and then we're going to have to wrap up. Can and should pregnant women get the vaccine? Do we know more about that at this point? Dr. Nikosevich, I'll go to you. So we have a little bit of additional data available regarding pregnant women and COVID-19 vaccines at this point in time. And CDC does recommend that pregnant women do receive the vaccine at this point in time. And what about the effect of the vaccines on fertility? That's probably the most common thing, reason that I've heard that some people are avoiding the vaccine is because of what they've heard. And I know we talked about this before, Dr. Nikosevich, but can you address it really briefly? Absolutely. So that information certainly has not changed since the last time we spoke. There is some similarity between the protein that is involved, the spike protein that is present on COVID-19 molecule, and it's very similar to a spike protein that is present within the human placenta that's uh, responsible for helping adhesion of the placenta and essentially the progression of the pregnancy to continue. However, that similarity is not close enough to where the vaccine would actually impact the ability of that protein within the placenta to perform its function and to allow for implantation of the placenta and the progression of pregnancy. So yes, there is a similarity, but like I explained last time, it's like having a phone number that starts with 773 in Chicago area, you could dial it and get 50,000 different people. There is no chance that this could actually happen where the placenta would not be able to implant because someone received the vaccine. And is it too soon or do we have data that people who've gotten vaccinated have also subsequently successfully gotten pregnant? I do know that there were numerous pharmacists at least because those are the ones that I keep in touch with that had received the vaccine and sub subsequently became pregnant. I also know numerous pharmacists personally who were pregnant while they received the vaccine and there were absolutely no issues with their pregnancy. Keep in mind that COVID-19 carries a large risk when it comes to pregnancies. So pregnant women who contract COVID-19 are at higher risk of severe consequences up to and including miscarriage. So that is always something to keep in mind is that risk versus benefit equation that we're looking at in medicine. And certainly with, with these vaccines, the benefits far outweigh the risks. Thank you. And we are out of time. 
I want to thank our audience for joining us today and all of our panelists from sharing the updates and all of the information that you have about the COVID-19 vaccine. This concludes our discussion today. You can find this session and every session of our discussion series on the RU podcast and Justice for All. Thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.